you to be able to uh, study Scripture at home and be able to sing some of these songs. And perhaps you noticed today in some of the early songs that we sang, I was just reminded of uh, the great privilege it is to be able to sing songs by Fanny J. Crosby. And perhaps some of you know what is unique about Fanny J. Crosby. Some of the children will learn this in, uh, typically in Sunday school, that Fanny J. Crosby was blind. She wrote more hymns than almost any hymn writer. In fact, she wrote so many hymns that she had to start using an, uh, an anonymous name so that they could put more of her hymns into the hymnal so that they weren't all written by Fanny J. Crosby. But throughout her hymns, one of the things that you'll see is this constant theme. If you just look at your program, if you have one there, just to God be the glory, the last verse, the very last sentence, our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. Or if you just turn the page and you see redeemed, you see in verse four, I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. Uh, This past week, I was reminded by uh, a friend that uh, the desire of the Christian from Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, to be pure in heart is not simply to just be pure in our lives so that we might be holy in in a variety of ways, not typically in the way that we only think of purity as sexual temptation, but to, to live pure and holy lives. The purpose is not simply so that we might be pure, but as Matthew tells us, uh, recording Jesus' words, to be pure in heart, that we might see God, that our faith will give way to sight. Even when we cannot see in this life, a day is coming when we will behold the king in his beauty. We will see him in all of his glory. That has nothing to do with the sermon today. I was just thinking about it as we were singing. That's free. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's all vanity anyways. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's inerrant and inspired word, the Bible. If you did not bring a Bible with you, we'd love for you to reach underneath the seat in front of you or near you, grab one of those copies. You can use it throughout the service today, but you can also take that home with you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's word that you can read and study and learn more about Jesus Christ. We're going to begin reading today in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Verse 1, and if you are the type of person who likes to write in your Bible, I want you to circle every time you see wise or wisdom, and I want you to underline every time you see fool or folly or fools or foolishness. Circle, wisdom, wise, underline, fool, folly, foolishness, fools. The preacher writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, Do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, 
and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scripture, and we ask now that you would help us as we turn our attention to it, that you might give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God as it has been revealed in the word of God. Father, we pray for this time together as we study your word, that you would help us to focus on it. Regularly, we remind ourselves that it is in these moments that the enemy is seeking to distract us. We pray, Father, that by your spirit and by your grace and for your glory, we would be able to maintain focus during this time. Father, we pray that you would write the eternal truths of your word on our hearts so that we would leave here and walk in wisdom and not leave here more foolish, that we might grow in wisdom and grow in the knowledge of Christ our Savior. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Jeremiah 18, 18 tells us that during the Old Testament era, God standardized his speaking to us in three ways. The priests taught his law, the prophets declared his word, and wise men gave his counsel. Both the commands of the law and the thunderings of the prophets actually spread out for us the gigantic truths of God and the great meta narrative of Scripture so that we can begin to make sense of everything. But Ecclesiastes has taught us that we need more. We live day by day in a world where the details of the character are small enough to escape the mesh of the law and the broadsides of the prophets, and yet are decisive enough in personal dealings. So God has given us more than the law and more than the prophets. He has also given us wise counsel in books like Ecclesiastes. For example, verse 4 of chapter 10, calmness will lay great offenses to rest. You don't find that in the Ten Commandments or in Isaiah, or into Hosea, but anger can backfire, and calmness is the antidote, and that is worth knowing. God cares about our understanding of the massive truths of our existence, but he also cares about the nuances that make a difference in our relationships and our experiences every single day. The Bible is a practical book. Even if we do seek the holiness of the law, and we do, And even if we are inspired by the visions of the prophets, and we are, we can still find ourselves messing up our lives, ruining our families, destroying our churches, getting fired from our workplaces, and disrupting our communities if we are unwise in this life. We need, the scripture tells us, God's help moment by moment down at the level where there are no hard and fast rules to go by. What kind of man or woman am I to marry? Where should I go to college if I go to college? And why would it be important for me to continue my education at all? What career path should I take and which one honors God? How do I endure this suffering that I can't seem to escape in my life? What is the most honorable way to spend the money that has been entrusted to me? Here at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, after discrediting all of the ways that we normally try to tap meaning in life, the preacher coaches us in the wisdom that we need throughout the long and complicated path of our everyday lives. It's practical, but it's not simplistic or moralistic, because what God is going after in this book is a deep heart change in those who read it as we mull over these words, this book slowly and thoughtfully. It's ancient wisdom from long human experience endorsed by God himself. And if we'll pay close attention today, God will make all of us into more profound people, especially as we reflect on passages like the one that is before us today. Of all the passages in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is probably the most difficult to interpret and to preach. Does it go with chapter 9, verses 13 through 18? Or does it go with chapter 11, verses 1 through 6? Or does it go with neither? And how are these proverbial pearls on a string arranged? Is there an order to them? 
Or is this a sampling of wisdom at random, a lot like a buffet where he just sets out all of the important thoughts that you need and you can just go and grab what you would like for the day and have your daily nugget and then move on? Is there an order? Though this difficult passage doesn't have a clear line through it, it is purposeful nonetheless, and it comes to us like the providences of our life, seemingly at random. Because as one of my seminary professors said, that's the whole point of the structure of proverbial books of the Bible. The literature reminds us as readers that things in our life feel random. They come to us in a way that don't seem connected, a lot like our life. One moment we're thinking about work, the next moment we're thinking about marriage, the next moment we're thinking about kids, the next moment we're thinking about wisdom, the next moment we're thinking about marriage, the next moment we're thinking about work, the next moment we're thinking about kids again. It doesn't seem to have a rhyme or reason to it, but that's exactly how life hits us, which is exactly what the preacher does here in chapter 10. He hits us like life hits us. Five points will frame our time together, and they will hit us like the preacher hits us, seemingly random, but purposeful nonetheless. Notice first two ways to live. Look again with me in verses one through three. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Everyone is on a path. Every single person in this room and every person that you have ever met is going somewhere. Life is a journey, and the end of it all is not just a place, but also a condition. We are, the preacher tells us, becoming the end of our journey. We will either be wise or we will be foolish, and every moment of our life is taking us closer to one of those realities. But did you notice how the preacher told us that in this passage? Not by simply listing the two things that you need to do to be wise, or telling us the three things that will turn us into fools instantaneously, but by simply mentioning wise or wisdom four times, and mentioning fools or folly or foolishness eight times. Fellow believers, as you are reading your Bible, one of the best ways to become a good reader of the Bible is to become a careful reader of the Bible who notices simple things like the repetition of words, phrases, and concepts. In a difficult passage like this, where it seems like we can't get the structure together, this is how the Holy Spirit is telling you what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is emphasizing in this passage. There are two ways to live, wisdom or folly, being wise or foolish, which means that as we have studied this book, as you have studied this book, as we have read and reread this book, you are, I am, becoming more wise by accepting its teaching and applying it to my life, or more foolish by rejecting its teaching and not applying it to my life. And this teaches us what we know to be true, but often don't vocalize, even as we sit in a room like this. Every single week, everybody responds to the sermon. You are, I am, always responding to the Word of God, either positively, with repentance and faith and application, or negatively, with hardness and unbelief and skepticism. The preacher begins chapter 10 by reinforcing what he has said at the end of the previous chapter in Ecclesiastes. He says, it takes far less to ruin something than to create it. Look in verse 1, the very end. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You can spend your whole life climbing the corporate ladder in pursuit of career success and financial stability, but lose it all in five minutes after an explosive outburst toward a colleague. Years of academic study come to a grinding halt after getting, getting caught cheating one time. An entire marriage built over decades is destroyed in one evening with somebody not your spouse. A lifetime of faithful military service is rendered meaningless after a dishonorable discharge, after leaving your post or going AWOL or committing a violent crime against another person one time. It takes 
far less to ruin something than it does to create it, which is why the preacher emphasizes this in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 and in the life of our church as we remind ourselves of where we are. I think the Apostle Paul focuses primarily on character requirements for the Christian and for leaders in the church. This is why his focus when he's speaking of elders is on character that is built over time. Hear these words afresh. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through seven. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's the only thing that's not character. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with the conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The type of character that Paul describes is built and observed over a lifetime, but it can all be thrown away in a single moment. Fellow elders of this church, prospective elder, wherever Renee is, aspiring pastors and teachers, are you guarding your life? Are you watching your life by the way that you live? Everything that you have labored for will be thrown away in an instant. Men in this church, every man, whether you are an elder, want to be an elder, or pray that we will never talk to you about being an elder, every single man and absolutely every single person in this church, both men and women, should aspire to have the type of character that Paul describes here in 1 Timothy. This should be what Christians look like. Do the people who know you best see you building the type of life over a lifetime that can be described as above reproach? Faithful, whether you're married or single. Sober-minded in the way that you approach life, or are you irrational? Self-controlled, not only in your anger, but in the way that you discipline yourself in your life, including the way that you interact with food, whether that is overeating or not eating, being respectable, hospitable, opening up what is yours in service to other people, or do you cling to it tight fist and protect it so that no one can ruin it? Not a drunkard, gentle. Not a lover of money. An honorable manager of your household, whether you're married or single. Humble. Do the people who know you best see the type of character in you that Ecclesiastes tells us is built over a lifetime and the Apostle Paul says is required for leadership in the church, but we submit to you is required of every single Christian. There's nothing in that passage that is unique to being an elder. Paul just says, make sure that they have it or don't put him there. Every man, every Christian, regardless of gender, should aspire to that type of character that is built over a life of faithfulness. Because the preacher tells us that wisdom and folly are diametrically opposed to one another. Look with me in verse 2 of chapter 10. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. For all of the politicos here, the preacher does not mean the right or the left in American political sense of conservative or liberal or Republican or Democrat to which some of you are thinking, I knew it was in the Bible. I knew it. In ancient Israel, the right hand indicated power and deliverance. The right side, moral goodness and favor. Hence, the reason the place of honor was the right hand. And the left hand usually symbolized a moral perversity and displeasure something that was not honorable in life. So Jesus, in his parable, 
speaking of the judgment of the nations, when he's reading and speaking about the Son of Man, says that he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. This is why the preacher says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. A wise man's heart will take him towards what is pure. A fool's heart will take him towards what is impure. A wise man's heart will take him towards what is true, regardless of what it will cost him. A fool's heart will take him towards dishonesty and lying because he wants to protect himself from the truth. A wise man's heart will lead him down paths of righteousness. A fool's heart will lead him down paths of unrighteousness. He tells us that every moment of our life, we're forced with this choice. Will we go towards what is true and right, whatever is honorable and good and pure? You think of the way the Apostle Paul speaks at the end of Philippians chapter four. Or will our heart lead us towards what is to the left? Dishonorable, sinful. And brothers and sisters, the way that we are walking reveals something about our spiritual state, regardless of what you profess to believe which is why the patterns of your life matter so much. You can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and live like you're going to hell. Or you can be very inarticulate and know the way of wisdom, walking in paths of righteousness. The preacher tells us that from the heart flows springs of life. And the heart of a fool inclines him towards folly and perversity. And he just hits that over and over again. And he tells us it comes at all different angles. It doesn't come in the most obvious ways all of the time. We would love there to be a warning sign. Here are the three foolish things. Here are all of the righteous things. But that's not how life is, which is why it's so difficult, which is why you call the church office in the middle of the week. I don't know what to do. What is the Christian thing? How do I live my life? What decision should I make here? Which one will honor God? It comes to us in all of those moments, and we're fighting for wisdom. The preacher knows that to be true. That was true in ancient Israel, and that's true in the 21st century because not much has changed between their life experience and our life experience. And this is why the preacher says that the fool is too full of himself to refrain from airing his views to everyone that he meets. Verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Just the image there, walking down the boardwalk in New Jersey is the image I have in my mind because that's where I was this week. The man walking down the boardwalk saying, I'm a fool, I'm a fool, I'm a fool, to which everyone keeps walking and looks down so that they don't have to engage him. That's the picture that the preacher puts out for us. You can see that guy coming a mile away because fools cannot hide that they are fools. They think they're wise. They think no one sees it. But the way that they walk on the road, that is the way that they live their life, makes it plain for all to see. Brothers and sisters, wisdom and folly are antithetical paths. Which one are you on? And better yet, do the people who know you best give the same answer that you would give? Are you living your life like a fool or like the wise person? Do the people who know you best see in you a constancy of wisdom or do they see foolish behavior? Do your thoughts, do your words, do your actions manifest a life of wisdom Or do they say to everyone around you, there goes a fool? Two ways to live. Notice second, don't let your emotions rule you. Look with me in verse four. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places. And the rich sit at a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. How did this upside down world of fools in high places and the rich in low places come about? According to verse 5, through the error of a ruler. And what error did the ruler commit? Verse 4 tells us, uncontrolled anger. 
Unhinged anger simmering just beneath the surface inverts order when it finally erupts. So verse 6, folly is found in high places and the rich in low places. And verse 7, slaves ride on horses while princes grovel at their feet. The preacher teaches us that folly, that sin, inverts God's good order. We see that here in the book of Ecclesiastes as a result of the ruler's anger from verse 4, but we see it all throughout the Bible, beginning in the Garden of Eden. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And I want us to see something that maybe you have not paid attention to before. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Moses writes, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruits. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. The man was to lead the woman, and they were to rule over the animals together. But something went terribly wrong when the serpent... The animal deceived the woman who then encouraged her husband to sin with her. Look in chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 1 through 7. And we see the inversion from chapter 1 taking place. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that there was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sin inverted God's good order and introduced chaos in the garden, and that pattern has persisted all the way to the writing of Ecclesiastes and all the way to this day. Sin inverts God's good order And sin always hides the cost. Just think of what is taking place here for Adam and Eve. If the enemy had come and said, when you do this, you will be cast out of the garden and you will die a physical death, but worse, you will die a spiritual death. And your sin will have repercussions and consequences for everybody who is after you all of your children. In fact, your son will murder your other son as a result of sin bringing chaos into the world. And throughout all of history, you will be remembered, yes, as Adam, the first head of the people, but you will be remembered as the one who introduced sin to all mankind. And that will be the reason that all die and go to hell apart from faith in Jesus Christ. No way would they have said, this is a great idea. Brothers and sisters, sin always inverts what is God's good order, and it always hides the cost. Husbands, wives, friends, children, family members in here, you do not sin in your right mind. 
If you began to fan it out, when I say this, she will cry. And then she will be destroyed by what I've said to her. And I'll never be able to take that back. And that means then I will then have to tell this person that I sinned against her. And then I will have to talk to them and go and repent to her and explain to the kids how those words hurt her and how that means that daddy needs to not be in the room tonight or sleep outside or go get a hotel or whatever. If we ever sinned like that, we would not do it. Sin always hides the cost from us. Just one more click. No one will know. Just one more lie. No one sees. Just one more action like that. No one's paying attention. It hides the cost, and we are paying far more by it than we would have ever done in our right minds. Sin inverts God's good order. Sin always hides the cost. Adam, Achan, Moses, David, Judas, Ananias, and Sapphira, Demas. But repentance acknowledges the cost that Christ paid for sin. And faith trusts that that cost will personally bring us salvation if we believe in what he did on the cross for us. When we acknowledge the cost of our sin, that the Son of God took on flesh like us and lived a life like us and was tempted as we are but did not sin and lived perfectly like we do not and went to the cross to die as our substitute because we could not and then died the death that we deserve to die, that we should die, but then rose because he was innocent for our justification. Faith believes that promise and asks God to make that ours, to forgive us of what sin costs all of us. Spiritual death. Brothers and sin, uh, sisters, your sin will disrupt your life but your sin will send you to hell. Your sin is not something to trifle with or play with. Your sin is something that is disrupting your life now and will pull you to a Christless eternity. The preacher tells us that sin inverts God's good order and sin always hides the cost, but repentance turns and trusts in Christ and faith believes that that was enough Brothers and sisters who are battling sin, one of the things that I see so much as a pastor is that you do not believe, especially when I'm saying brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to people who are Christians. You often do not believe that Christ's sacrifice was enough for your sin. And you are trying to live your life as if you could do more to make yourself acceptable to Christ. That his sacrifice saves you, but something else keeps you saved or at least acceptable in his sight. But what you need today is the same thing you needed the first day that you trusted Christ. Deeper repentance and deeper faith because you will never be acceptable by your works. Your works have never made you favorable to God. Your good works have never made you acceptable to him. Your good works have never made you pleasing in his sight. In fact, your good works are a filthy rag. It is always the precious blood of Christ that we need. And what you need when you are battling sin is to remind yourself that that sacrifice was enough the day that you were saved and it is enough to keep you saved and it is enough every single day of your life as you are trying to put sin to death. Brothers and sisters, remind yourself of the good gospel. And for those of you here who are not believers, the gospel confronts you with your sin. It inverts God's good order and it takes you places that you would never go in your right mind and it always hides the cost. The price you're paying now and the price you will pay for all of eternity if you do not repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. Trust in Jesus Christ. Ask God to forgive you of your sins and he will. And if you have any questions about what that means, I would love to speak with you after the service. Come and find me, and we'll open a Bible with you and tell you the truth of the gospel found in the person of Christ. The preacher tells us that, in verse 5, this is an evil that is under the sun. And that shakes our confidence in the permanence of things, because what is supposed to be good and stable 
ends up being inverted, and then there is upheaval, as verses 6 and 7 tell us, all because of the emotional instability of a ruler in verse 4. But the preacher tells us that there is another way, verse 4, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Calmness is far less impressive, but it is more mature and it is wisdom, as the proverb says. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. In our house, one of the things that I am constantly asking our kids, because I am constantly reminding myself, I'm asking them, what happens when you let your emotions rule you? And their response, if they were standing here, they would tell you, if they rule you, they will control you. The preacher tells us that there is another way to fight back from uncontrolled anger, to fight back from harsh words, to fight back is pressing in to a posture of calmness. And that only happens when we are certain that God is real, his promises are good, he will faithfully bring about what he has promised to us. Part of the reason that we experience so much anxiety in our lives is because we do not trust God. And part of the reason that we are so restless and not calm is because we do not believe in his promises. The preacher tells us that this inversion of God's good order will take us places that we would never go in our right mind and that there is a more excellent way, calmness, trusting in God's providence. Two ways to live. Don't let your emotions rule you. Notice third, abiding irony. Look in verse eight. He who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. In verses 8 through 10, the preacher gives an illustration of what may happen in our lives when we don't use wisdom. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Digging a pit is a metaphor of evil doing aimed at other humans. They would dig a pit, trap the human, and then take something from them or sell them off into slavery. And breaking through a wall should be taken as a parallel to that same type of evil doing. It's another example of breaking in to steal. But notice the character consequence structure of the verse. It tells us what to expect by this type of life. Evildoers, fools, get their just rewards. The one who digs the pit will fall into it himself. The one who breaks in and enters will be bitten by a snake because they are living as if their lives will not appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Living their life with no regard to the consequences of their life. Brothers and sisters, are you living your life as if there are no consequences? Parents and grandparents, are you raising children as if there are no consequences for the way that they live their lives? Fellow members of this church, are you reminding one another that there actually are consequences for our actions and some of our actions change some things forever? The preacher knows, however, this doesn't always happen. So he gives us two examples, once again, of the unpredictable, reminding us that life is an enigma. Look in verse nine. He who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them. He's not being a fatalist, he's being a realist as he prepares to remind us that wisdom should bring success. Verse 10, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. What is that wisdom? If it is dull, sharpen it. If you don't want it blunt, you need to prepare it for your work. Wisdom should bring success. But we all know to be true in our own experience that wisdom does not always bring success. So verse 11, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The preacher helps us see that wisdom is needed in every area of our life as we seek to navigate our life, especially as we'll see in verses 12 through uh, 15 in our daily talk. Two ways to live. Don't let your emotions rule you. Abiding irony. Notice fourth, words, words, words. Look in verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, 
but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Careful readers notice that there is a disproportionate amount of attention given to the wrong use of words in verses 12 through 15. Just look again at verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, reminding us of when Jesus preached in the synagogue of his own hometown in Nazareth. The people's first reaction was favorable. Luke tells us, all spoke well of him and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming forth from his mouth. Matthew actually tells us that when people first heard Jesus, they were overwhelmed by what they heard. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. They were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Authority in speech and grace in speech came together in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now that is a lesson in wisdom for us today. That authority and grace should come together in the speech of a Christian, and there is no place in the Bible that helps us see this better than in the book of James, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, where James writes to us and tells us of our speech. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large that it takes a strong wind to drive them, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one among men is able to subdue the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. God is a speaking God. And then God gives the 10 words to his people. And then God sends the incarnate word in the flesh and gives to his people a faith that is proclaimed by words. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. By your words, you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. We use our words to praise God and to declare the mystery of salvation. And yet, from that same mouth come cursings and slander and malice and evil plots and maliciousness. These things ought not be so. Look online, read whoever you want. In the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, authority and gracious speech came together. And if you are listening to people or reading people who are authoritative but jerks, you are walking in the way of foolishness. And if you are reproducing that in your own life, you are an acid that will destroy its own container and you will destroy the church. These things ought not be so. The most authoritative man who ever lived spoke with grace. Husbands, are you speaking graciously to your wives? Wives, are you speaking graciously to your husbands? Single brothers and sisters, are you speaking to other people or about your situation or other members of this church with blessed speech or wicked speech? Children, 
Are you honoring your parents with your words? Fellow members, are you building one another up or tearing one another down? It is so easy to fall into the trap of saying, I'm just the guy who shoots straight and tells people like it is. The guy who shoots straight and tells people like it is is a fool according to the preacher and is somebody who's not walking in the way of Christ according to James and is not living like Jesus where authority and grace came together. The rest of verses 12 through 15 are focused entirely on wrong use of words, portraying for us that what we already know to be true in our own experience, that the number of a fool's words are disproportionate to their actual understanding. Verse 14, a fool multiplies words that no man knows what is, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. They talk as if they know the future. They speculate and pontificate and try to tell people what's going to take place. But as he has done before, the preacher reminds us in verse 14 that no man knows the future. No one. God has set the times. We do not know what the future holds. So what makes fools think that they can predict the future? Friends, here's just a very simple principle. Anyone predicting the future is a liar. They do not know what will take place in the days ahead which is why, as a complete aside here at our church, we do not make you pick a particular millennial position to be a member. I'm right. I think I'm right. You all should be right like me, but I don't know if I'm right. We'll find out on the last day. And if you want to know what I think I'm right about, I'm happy to talk to you afterwards because it really doesn't matter. It matters in that we try to approach Scripture in a healthy way. But the future is the Lord's, and you are not to worry about the future Each day has enough anxiety of its own. Be faithful now, right here where you are, instead of thinking about tomorrow. The preacher tells us that the fool multiplies his words, and he begins in foolishness, and he descends into wicked madnessness. Verse 13, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. From the beginning of his speech to the end of his speech, his words do not bring him favor, They ruin him, but he does not see where it's leading him because he is taken over by evil madness. That is why fools get caught in their words. Liars cannot keep the story straight. They can't remember who they told what. They can't manage the lie. Are you a liar? And are you lying to people here? One of these is truth, and one of these is a lie. I struggled this week. The other is, When I was speaking to this person, I got really upset and then went back and I gossiped about them and slandered them in my heart. One is truth, one is a lie. You know, I struggled this week too. The other is, this is what I did and it was wrong. You can be confessing your sin and not really be confessing your sin. One is truth, one is a lie. Are you presenting yourself in a way that is not true and does not characterize your daily life? Fools get caught because it leads them into evil madness and they can't manage it any longer. And they get lost on the way to the city, verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Not knowing the way to the town is idiomatic for an expression for incompetence. They're so foolish, they don't know their way to the city and their work wears them out. Recently, we read through Dangerous Journey. It is an excellent book. I commend it to everybody. Dangerous Journey is the children's ver- version of Pilgrim's Progress, and I think it li- I like it longer than the other one, and it's shorter. We're reading it with our kids, and it is an excellent book to just think about what is taking place in Christian's life. More questions than have ever been asked me were asked as we're reading that book. Can other people see Christian's burden? Why is his burden so heavy to him? When he looked to the cross, why did his burden roll off his back and roll into the tomb? But one of the perceptive things was one night we're sitting there and the kids found and recognized that though Christian is on his way to the city, that there are all of these people who are popping up along the way who are trying to discourage him or lead him down a different path. People who are telling him things that are not true. And they begin to ask, Why aren't these people helping him? Why are they leading him away? And what happens to all of those fools? They don't persist, and they don't make it in the end. To be a fool is to not be walking toward the celestial city. 
to be wise is to walk in the way of wisdom, the way of Christ towards the new heavens and the new earth. This is not just a matter of IQ and intelligence or acumen. It is the way that we pattern the entirety of our lives as believers. As the preacher said in verse 12, the lips of a fool consume them. Two ways to live. Don't let your emotions rule you. Abiding irony. Words, words, words. Notice fifth, child kings. Look in verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. The king is so incompetent, and the princes are so far off that they're out partying. So who is looking after the nation and its citizens? The nation with its upside-down political order is like the house that is not maintained, verse 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in. Through indolence, the house leaks. As princes sing their drinking song, verse 19, Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. They're totally focused on letting the good times roll and letting them have those good times for themselves, but they have no concern for the community around them. Do you have concern for the community around you? Or are your thoughts so focused only on you that you do not care about the very people who are around you? Does the way that you live your life manifest that you are primarily concerned about yourself or primarily concerned about the people that God has put in the spheres of your influence at work, at home, in this church. While the good times roll, no one is looking after the community, so people suffer, and people become more and more frustrated. And yet the preacher warns us, verse 20, even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice. And some winged creature will tell the matter. The preacher has reinforced his point for us in this chapter with three kinds of animals that he's mentioned in this passage. Flies at the beginning, snakes in the middle, birds at the end. All are small and apparently insignificant creatures, but each has the potential for great harm. Dead flies spoil the ointment. A little snake can kill a big person with its poison. And a little bird can tell the king your secret thoughts and get you in a lot of trouble. So a little folly can do a lot of harm. Friends, we are to use wisdom. Here are just a few practical ways to think of wisdom in your life. You are to use wisdom in your daily walk. The way that you navigate the contours of your life from the moment you wake up to the moment that you go to bed. It is not simply the propositions of Scripture that you need, but immersing yourself in the wisdom tradition, reading the Proverbs, reading the Psalms, reading Ecclesiastes, reading Song of Solomon, reading the book of James, reminding ourselves, how do we walk in the way of wisdom so that our speech and our deeds and our actions reflect Christ? So that not only in the way that we proclaim Christ, but the way that we live our life, people see wisdom. Matters in our daily talk, and it matters in our daily relationships. Here's something we can apply to ourselves, especially for those of you who are more verbose, like me. Fools talk too much. Wisdom is seen in silence. Fools talk so much because they don't want to listen. They want to talk, but they don't want to be persuaded. Are you the type of person that wants to talk, but you are unwilling to be persuaded that perhaps you are wrong? You are a fool. Wisdom wants to listen and wisdom wants to learn and wisdom is willing to be persuaded. Often in our lives, it can seem like they are out of order and that there is no structure to the way that all the things in our lives are taking place. I was reminded of that this week as I'm reading this chapter and I was reminded of that this week as I was reading Jared Mellinger's book for his upcoming Sunday Night Theology. It is a great book and I do hope that you will be here with us next week. But there was one quote in particular that was meaningful to me yesterday, 
and I'm going to read it to you. I shared it with several, especially for those of you who feel like your life is like the waves of the sea, being tossed to and fro. There's no order to the way that it's happening. It all seems like this chapter, chaotic, no structure, no straight line. He quotes Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon says this, and it's actually in a section, in the wisdom of God, the divine purposes now hidden will one day be revealed. And this is what Spurgeon says. The day will come when you will be astonished that there was order in your life when you thought it all confusion. You will be astonished that there was love and you thought it unkindness. That there was gentleness and you thought it severity. That there was wisdom when you were wicked enough to impugn God's righteousness. Brothers and sisters, some of you look at your life and it feels like an unkindness. But when we take a step back, as the preacher does, and we look at the beautiful mosaic that the God, our Lord God is painting, we begin to see that there is wisdom even when we can't see it. Often we can't see it because we're too close to the picture. And all we're looking at is today. And it's not until we step back and see that he's doing something bigger and better and greater than we could have ever hoped for in our lives. Through suffering, through sorrow, through sadness, through happy moments, through wonderful moments of worship, through difficult times in the life of the church, through our struggles with sin, through confession of sin, through all of these moments, he's doing something and weaving something together that is more beautiful than it would have been had you planned it yourself and you have gotten all of the providences in your life that you wished you would have gotten. It seems out of order, a lot like this chapter. But the preacher tells us that in the midst of that, we see God's kindness, we see God's mercy, we see God's gentleness in the way of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, would you help our unbelief? It is easy to say that there is order in the midst of the chaos. But it is difficult to believe that. And if we're honest, we often don't feel that to be true. The anarchy we experience around us in this world and the discomfort that we have experienced in our lives proclaims to us something that is false. God is out of control. He's no longer sitting on his throne. The things that are taking place in my life are an accident, that there is no rhyme or reason, that God is not good, that you are unfaithful, that you will not keep your promises. Father, we press back on that lie today, and we ask that you would help our unbelief. For the believers here, I pray, Father, that you would help them to look for the way of wisdom in the midst of the chaos and follow Jesus through the storm that they would trust him and believe in him and hope in him and plead his mercy and be reminded of the goodness of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ in the midst of all of the uncertainties of this life. And Father, for those who are here today who hear us speak of a God who rules and reigns, who is sovereign and faithful, who makes covenant promises and keeps covenant promises, we pray today that you would do the good work of regenerating them, of removing the heart of stone and inserting the heart of flesh and causing them to see for the first time the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the only way to peace. That is the way of wisdom, repentance and faith. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we leave this place to look for opportunities to display wisdom in all of the areas of our life, not simply the ones that we know to be religious or feel to be religious, but in all of the areas of our life so that with the apostle and with the preacher, whether we eat or drink or whatever it is we do, we might do all to the glory of God in Christ. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the risen Christ. Amen. Would you please stand and continue in worship with us?
Show me after. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He the theme of heaven's praise 